Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Liz. She has joint pain, Hashimoto's, brain fog, and she just doesn't feel well. She didn't want to start taking NSAIDs for pain and the trial of antidepressants for her brain fog that was offered to her. So instead, she started to research supplements. She was so happy to see that they were supplements to help with many of her symptoms, and she was thrilled to start them. She got B vitamins, minerals, glucosamine, fish oils, green powders, herbs, you name it. But she was super shocked that she didn't see as much of a difference. She could not believe that she spent all this money and her symptoms didn't really change. She started to read more and then she realized that supplements should really be customized. And she thought that's probably why she wasn't feeling better because she may not have been taking the right kinds of supplements for her. And this is when she came to see me. I was really excited to do some testing to figure out where the root cause lied for her and what she truly needed. But as I took a detailed health history and got to know her much more in our first session, I realized that there was more to this story. Don't get me wrong. I love, love supplements and take plenty myself. So I would never want to say anything negative about supplements, but they're typically part of the solution, not the whole solution. I saw that Liz didn't cook, nor did she like to cook. And I knew there was a whole other piece to the story that we needed to explore to solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. Dr. Carolyn Williams, I am so excited to have you on. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with y'all. So Carolyn, when dealing with chronic health issues, what we eat is so important. But while I know this, you know this, and I know everyone listening also knows this, it doesn't mean that we always do it. And it's not always as easy as we think that it is, right? So why is that? I think it's just partly because of our busy lifestyles. You know, we all know at least some of the things we should be doing or some of the things we should be eating more of or less of. 
And, you know, we have the best intentions, but when push comes to shove, unless we have those foods prepared or we have the ingredients or we have the time, you know, it's really hard to make it happen, especially once you, you know, reach that hungry <laughs> point. So one of the things that you talk about a lot in your book is inflammation and, you know, how we can heal that with food. Now, of course, there's lots of supplements, there's lots of other things that we can do, but I think it's so important, and you highlight this so well, is that the food is really the number one thing, right? That's kind of the the first priority, and then everything else comes after, and that's what's so, so important. Now, when we talk about inflammation, can you give us some signs of what chronic inflammation looks like? Because it's not just thinking, oh, well, inflammation means that something is going to hurt, right? I mean, yes, if we have inflammation in, you know, and a cut gets inflamed, it's going to hurt, it might get pussy, but it's a lot more than that. What are some signs that someone could be inflamed? So, you know, what you just described is acute inflammation, and that's Inflammation is a reaction of the immune system, and that's good. That's say that's when you have that you know cut, get red, hurt. You know that's a good sign. Or when you want to run a fever, that's good inflammation because it shows the immune system is responding to bacteria or foreign invaders, or it's healing whatever is going on on your finger or wherever it is. And the key to it is it then dissipates as your finger heals, it goes away, you know. The other kind of inflammation that's become so rampant is not a normal reaction of the nervous system, and that's low-grade chronic inflammation. And it's triggered primarily by lifestyle issues or habits, things in our lifestyle that irritate the body. It starts largely with diet. Now, sleep, stress, activity, those all play roles as well, but Diet is really kind of a key component. And the trouble with this low-grade inflammation is it's very subtle and it's pretty quiet until it really gets going in the body. And, you know, I list in the book, I think, some red flags, some early red flags, like your body's saying, hey, you know, inflammation is up a little. Let's get it back down. And you'll see when I list them, they're, they're very subtle. So it could be like, maybe some new bloating after you eat certain things, or, you know, maybe you just can't get this stubborn weight off. And usually, you know, if you want to drop a few pounds, or if you've gained it, like it's fairly easy to do if you do the right things. It can be headaches, you know, just it doesn't have to be every day, but just headaches that you don't normally get. Anything that is not quite your norm. And we all know, we all notice it and think, oh, how's my body doing this? That's annoying. I have a headache or, you know, or that's annoying. My blood pressure is a little up, but it's not technically high blood pressure. You know, um, anything that are go beyond your body's outside norm, that's usually a subtle sign of early inflammation. And, you know, the problem is all of these things are, you know, never things we would stop what we're doing and go to the doctor for, you know, like, you don't, you know, I have a headache today, you know, you, you're not gonna run to the doctor unless it's like a severe migraine or something. But those are kind of your early red flags. And it's easy at those points, you know, if you'll just, you know, when you notice your body, just not doing something that it normally does, or, you know, you're, you know, you're having more GI issues, or you've got this skin irritation that won't go away, those little kind of things. If you can stop then and kind of help your body lower that inflammation, then you can resolve a lot of issues going forward. 
Yeah. And that's so helpful to see because I think most people, like you said, wouldn't be going to the doctor for that. And even if they do, what will happen, right? The doctor will say, oh yeah, well, you can't lose weight. Just exercise more, eat less, right? Or, you know, oh, your stomach hurts. Oh, well, let me send you maybe to a GI doctor who may do a whole bunch of things, but that is still not going to address the overall inflammation because, I mean, most doctors don't talk about food, unfortunately, right? And these aren't things that necessarily would be picked up on any kind of laboratory test mm-hmm. either, you know, until they the inflammation progresses significantly, you know? Um, so that's why it's so hard. But I think what I've learned even personally is, you know, listening to your body is so important, but it's, it's hard in the busy lifestyles we lead to stop and like, actually pay attention and then do something about it. Yeah. And I think in some ways, you know, a lot of people who have more chronic health issues do tend to be a little bit more sensitive. I call them the highly sensitive, which, you know, I know sometimes that can be looked down upon or feel like as a negative, but I always say, cause I'm a pretty sensitive person and so many of my clients and um, students are, and I always say, you know, this is actually a gift because you can pick up these early signs and do something about it versus someone else that would ignore them for weeks, months, even years. Yes. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. I almost worry a little more about the people who are quote unquote healthy and you know, have no reason to really be sensitive or to be watching for these little things um, because inflammation develops slowly. So even people, you know, no matter what your health is, it's important to be on top of it and watch for those little things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for people who know that they have some inflammation, maybe they feel it with some of the symptoms you mentioned, or maybe they have even seen something in the blood test, perhaps it's even more progressed for them. And they know that they want to eat better, they need to eat better, but they don't know where to start. And for some, it could be, you know, maybe they live alone and they're not sure if they want to make this elaborate meal just for one person, or maybe they have little kids and, you know, every minute of the day is accounted for and it's just hard to get everything together. I know that you provide so much amazing information in your book. Um, So everyone, please pick that up. There's so, so much goodness in there, but I'd love to go through some practical tips and things that people can do so that they can take something away from this show today as well. So where would someone start? Okay, this is probably going to throw people because I think our current culture has trained us to think, okay, if I'm going to improve my health through diet, then that starts with cutting stuff out. We are going to get to that. But where I direct people to start first is adding some really key anti-inflammatory foods. And there's three that I'm going to give you. And that is really... These three types are where I really encourage people to start. There are a lot of dietary inflamers, as I call them in our diet, and we're going to get to those. But the power in anti-inflammatory foods is so huge. And, you know, most all people are not getting near enough of those. The other thing is when you start adding these foods, usually that automatically cleans up some of the inflamers anyway. So those three foods, and these are three groups, categories of foods that when I was going through my research for my first anti-inflammatory cookbook, um, that just came to the top. You know, they almost got to be obnoxious. You know, I 
think, oh my gosh, these foods again, you know, give me something new, you know, (laughs) but it's um, berries, leafy greens, and cruciferous vegetables. So I'm going to start actually with leafy greens. Leafy greens are one of the best things to incorporate, and it's best if you can do it daily. Just a cup of leafy greens, any kind of leafy greens, of course, the darker ones usually tend to be higher in nutrients and um, antioxidants and phytochemicals, but just incorporating a cup of leafy greens. And this doesn't have to, this doesn't necessarily mean a salad. This can be throwing some baby spinach in a smoothie or kale in a smoothie. Um, You know, a lot of times if I'm making a saucy like skillet dish and maybe I'm serving the kids over some rice, I will serve um, mine over just a bed of baby spinach and it will wilt when the hot dish gets over it. And it's wonderful. So you're not cooking the spinach, you're putting the raw spinach on the plate and then putting the skillet with the other veggies and the rice and the things that you're mixing on top of it. Okay. Yeah. If kind of just use, make a bed of the baby spinach and serve the, you know, saucy dish over the baby spinach. Um, Sometimes I'll stir it in, you know, it just depends. There's just lots of other ways besides a salad. Salads are great, but you know, I think I know people get tired of salads and there's lots of other options. Um, So try to get a cup in of leafy greens a day. Berries are the other one. Berries are so powerful in their anti-inflammatory compounds and nutrients. It really doesn't matter which one, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, any of your berries. And it doesn't matter if it's fresh or frozen. Both are great. In fact, a lot of times your frozen may retain even more of their nutrients than fresh. So when and this is true for a lot of produce, but when berries are picked, they are at their prime nutritionally. They are at their best. You know, ideally you would eat them right then. So from that point forward, they're slowly going to have some nutrient loss. So if you pick these berries, package them, put them on a truck, and then they're shipped across the country, well, it may be a week before you end up actually eating those berries. So they've had, they've had a week to lose nutrients. On the flip side, frozen are often um, frozen about an hour after they're picked in the field. And so freezing significantly slows that nutrient loss. So, you know, I think a lot of people think fresh is best. Fresh is great, you know, especially quality when you compare to, to frozen or canned or anything. But, you know, frozen are a great option and frozen also don't go bad in your freezer. So you can always have them available, right? Definitely. And then the third group is um, cruciferous vegetables. And I tell people their tip off with cruciferous vegetables is um, if it stinks while it's cooking, has kind of that sulfur odor, then that's usually your tip off that it's a cruciferous vegetable. So your broccoli, your cauliflower, your kale, you know, that your Brussels sprouts, they have that noticeable, they show that noticeable odor, kind of sulfurish, and but it's the sulfur compounds in them that actually are one of the things that make them so powerful. So trying to get those in at least four to five times a week, just a serving in four to five times a week can have really powerful benefits. And, you know, for some people, I just challenge them to start with those three. For other people who, you know, I say, okay, just start Pick one of those and let's start there. 
you know, start trying to get, and I don't think I gave the amount for berries, but, you know, try to get two to three cups in a week. And that's so doable. Yes. And, and go and start there. I don't start with restriction. I start with adding, but that people don't realize how much power there is in those foods. And then, like I said, once you get in the habit of adding these, particularly all three, it kind of cleans your diet out a little bit anyway. So you don't feel restricted. Right. When you put in more good stuff, you know, it naturally something else is going to fall away because you'll be filling up on those for sure. Right. And what's even better is when people start to see some benefits just by adding those foods, like maybe reduction in joint pain or skin clears up a little, then that just motivates you even more to clean up some of those inflamers in the diet. And this is something that I think is not talked about nearly enough because everywhere, whether it's social media, whether it's podcast books, everywhere we go, it's always remove this, remove this, remove this. And like you said, that has its place as well, but we just don't hear like, hey, eat more of this to help versus remove, you know? So I think that's just a positive. I love that. I don't know if it stems from the past diet culture or what, but it's almost like we feel, and and I catch myself doing it, you know? Okay, I want to check the list. I'm getting rid of this and this and this, you know? I don't know, but um, I have to pause myself even to say, okay, let's focus on adding. Yeah. One thing I was going to ask you is with the cruciferous vegetables, um, they're wonderful, of course, but there's a lot of people who tend to have gas and bloating already, which is one of the signs of inflammation, as you mentioned, and they don't tolerate those as well. Do you have any suggestions on how they can incorporate those so that they don't get so bloated? Yeah, you know, maybe try different ones. A lot of times different cruciferous vegetables may um, react differently in your GI tract. Um, when it comes to bloating. Also, watch what you're eating at the same time as those um, because it may be the cruciferous, you know, along with gluten or dairy or something else going on that's adding to it. So I would say don't give up, give up on them as a whole. Maybe try different ones and try different cooking methods. Usually cooked is, is going to be a lot easier on the digestive tract than raw. My favorite way to cook most all cruciferous vegetables, really most all vegetables in general is roasting. You know, that's also a way if people think they don't like broccoli, if they think they don't like cauliflower, try it roasted. It is a game changer for a lot of people when it comes to all vegetables, but particularly cruciferous. Now, for those who are very novice and just, you know, maybe they don't cook or they're maybe just starting out, when you roast something, um, can you give us a little bit more direction there? So do we put something on it, some type of an oil? What oil do you prefer if so? And then what temperature and what type of tray would you put them on? What's your favorite? And if you haven't done it before, it seems like, oh my gosh, what do I do? But I swear you really can't mess these up. And once you do it a couple of times to get the hang of it, it is so easy um, to do. So pick your vegetable. Let's say it's broccoli or cauliflower, and you're going to cut it into florets or small pieces. And you are going to get some kind of baking sheet. The key to roasting is you want the temperature to be really high And you want the vegetables to have space. So you don't, you want to have something where you can spread those vegetables out so that the heat can fully get around each floret. 
if that makes sense. So you really want to avoid moisture. So make sure if um, you have dried your vegetables very well, make sure there's no moisture on them. You get them in the you know size you want. The other key, and this isn't as true for your cruciferous because they're very dense vegetables, but if you are roasting something like squash or zucchini or a more delicate vegetable, make sure that you cut them in a uniform size so that they'll all roast to the same point. Because if you have like really, and same true for like sweet potato, you want those cubes or slices of sweet potato to be a consistent size. If not, you're going to have some bigger ones that maybe aren't as roasted and then some smaller ones that are over roasted. So, but let's get back to the broccoli. Let's say we're roasting broccoli. So we want a sheet pan. We want to dry our broccoli, get it in the size florets that we want. We want to preheat the oven to 400 or 425, what I usually do. Okay, pretty hot. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you want to get it good and hot. And before you, you know, spread your broccoli out on the sheet pan, I use avocado oil. Avocado oil is my go-to for high heat cooking. Um, extra virgin olive oil is great, but it needs to be saved for your dressings, your marinades, your very low heat dishes, because it will break down once it gets um, to certain temperatures and it will break down into components that you actually don't want in your body. Um, so I, my favorite go-to for high heat um, is avocado oil. You can also use some people like coconut oil. I'm not a huge fan only because I'm not crazy about the flavor or the taste because it is kind of overwhelming. Avocado oil is an alternative and it is a very neutral tasting oil. So I will even use um, a little bit of olive oil and as well as some avocado oil cooking spray sometimes just to because sometimes it can be hard to get the oil all over all the broccoli pieces. Um, So you basically just want to toss the broccoli with the oil, with the avocado oil cooking spray. Get them good and coated, you know, where you can see some of the oil on every piece. And then I season um, mine. My favorite way to do it is just some salt and pepper. And I use um, like a coarse garlic powder. A lot of some people like regular garlic, but I really like the coarse garlic powder. It almost adds a little texture to the outside. Right. It's almost like a little crunch, right? Yeah. Mm. So I really like doing that. Plus, um, you don't have to worry about little garlic pieces burning or anything. So make sure everything's tossed well. When the oven's heated, I stick, depending on your size, I would stick broccoli in anywhere from 8 to probably 12 minutes. Um, check it. You want, I really like mine kind of crispy on the edges. So, you know, try a piece, toss it and, you know, and then spread the florets back out again. And then, you know, maybe stick it back in for two to three more minutes. Um, you, you really can't mess, mess this up and you'll learn that, um, the more the high heat and the dryness and just having that oil is really what it's doing is it is caramelizing the outside of the vegetable and crisping it up. And that's what makes it so good. And the caramelizing is just from natural sugars in the vegetable, which is very low to begin with. But um, you're just bringing out the natural flavor. And 
I swear, it's my favorite way to eat broccoli and most any vegetable. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. Because I think I grew up with my mom always steaming stuff and, you know, the whole house smells and like, yes. oh, but yes, it's a complete game changer with roasting. Now, what about air frying? Air fries are so popular these days. A lot of people are getting them and that sort of accomplishes a, a similar goal, right? Is roasting? Yes. Air fryers are great. I did have one. I just moved mine to make more room in my kitchen, but I used it a lot for roasting. Um, you can't do as much broccoli or whatever you're roasting because it's smaller. And remember, you really want to have space um, or you just don't want the vegetables crowded on that sheet pan. Um, but it is great for small batches because it gets so hot quickly. And, you know, you would just prepare it the exact same way if you are actually using the air fryer setting. I know air fryers are all different, but if you use the air fryer setting, it looks almost like a kind of toaster oven version. You probably want to cut the minutes down just a few because it can even go hotter than, than the roasting in the oven. Now, can you roast a few different vegetables together or do you typically do individual ones on their own sheets? Like if you were to do, say, broccoli and cauliflower or Brussels sprouts. Oh, definitely. Yes. And the thing, only thing you want to watch out for is if you have vegetables that, um, for instance, I probably wouldn't roast asparagus and broccoli or cauliflower together. The asparagus is going to be more delicate. It's going to cook you know, it's probably going to need five minutes less than the broccoli. It may need, you know, six to eight minutes less than the cauliflower. So you want to choose vegetables that are similar in density, I guess, if that makes sense. So unless you plan to, you know, halfway through stop and remove the asparagus. Um, but yeah, of course, you can roast things together. You know, I love in the summer to roast squash and zucchini and onions in there together. A lot of times I will put my onions in first just because I want they need to cook a little bit more. And then I'll add my squash and zucchini because they don't take long at all. Now with squash and zucchini, do you typically cut them in rounds or do you cut them in like little cubes? Because they have a lot of water in them. And I find when I roast them, I don't know. I guess I'm not doing it the right way because it just looks like soup. No, that was probably a bad example to bring up because they don't get it roasted, roasted like your broccoli will or your asparagus can or green beans or that kind of thing. They are going to have more, more, more moisture, but still just uh, the high heat will caramelize some, but there is going to be some more water loss um, in those just because they have so much water content. Now you mentioned green beans. I've never tried roasting green beans. Yes. Green beans are my favorite. Oh, wow. Yes. And um, I will make them actually have gotten where it'll be the first thing I make for dinner because I'll pull them out and I really like to get mine kind of crunchy on the edges. And I found everybody will start walking by and snacking on the green beans. And it's usually very few left for dinner, but that's fine with me because everybody's been snacking on green beans. So <laughs> you're not steaming them first. You're just taking the raw green beans, you're washing them, you're cutting off the ends and then putting oil and putting them the way you did the broccoli, right? Exactly. Make sure you dry them really good. Do them exactly how I described the broccoli. You know, depending on the size, it's going to vary, but I would probably say 12 to 15 minutes. Um, I will um, stir them after about eight minutes. They are amazing roasted. I'm going to try that tonight. That's a, I've never tried that. That sounds fantastic. We do roasted kale a lot and that it's uh, it's a little bit of more effort because when you wash it, you have to almost either lay it out to dry or dry it really well because there's so many little crevices in the kale of where the water can hide. So it takes a little bit to dry, but once it's completely dry with a little bit of the avocado oil spray, 
that comes out really good and crunchy. And I actually find the same thing as you mentioned with the green beans. People walk by, like my son walked by, my husband walked by, and I'm like, oh, what happened to all the kale chips? <laughs> They're gone. Yes, it's great. I never complained. Broccoli, the same thing happens to broccoli at my house. And, you know, I have to keep my mouth shut because I'm just so excited. And I'm yeah. Like, Carolyn, don't mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. No, that's great. So roasting is such a nice option. Now, just going back to the leafy greens, because, um, you know, that's obviously so anti-inflammatory. It's one of your top three. So I really want people to start to include them because I find that that the leafy greens, at least from my experience with my clients and students, that's usually the one that people incorporate the least. It's easier to do the cruciferous and the berries, I think. So you mentioned doing the bed of greens, you know, that you put before you put your other food on, which I think is a great suggestion. We just talked about kale, roasting kale. What else? Um, how else can people incorporate leafy greens? You know, I will, and I keep mentioning baby spinach, but it's a it's a one I always buy every week because I can use it raw or I can stir it and add it to hot dishes. Like I can stir it into a soup and it very quickly wilts so I can eat it hot. So I like the versatility. I know you've seen the, the quote that is circulated on social media for a long time now. You know, I can't wait till I go buy those greens to let them sit in my refrigerator for two weeks till they go bad or something to that effect. You know? yes, yes. So I feel like one of my tricks for myself is I really like baby spinach because I can use it to make a salad. I can throw it in smoothies, but then I can also use it in cooking. And so the versatility I really like, but by no means is that the only one. That's just one of the very few that you can use both ways. But if you, let's say you have soup for lunch, I know it's hot uh, right now still in most parts, but it will be getting colder. And even if I, you know, have bought a um, like healthier version of a homemade, of a um, store-bought soup, or I get soup out somewhere and take it home, I, you can stir greens in, baby spinach being a, one of the easiest to do, stir greens into that and get it in. And I will sometimes stir it into spaghetti sauce, um, or you can use like chopped frozen spinach or chopped some kind of chopped green. You want to get a chopped green if you're buying frozen, or else you're going to have long strands, which are not appetizing. And so make sure you get the chopped, but I will stir that into like um, a spaghetti sauce I'm making and just add it in little places or, you know, most skillet dishes, like if you're making a chicken dish in the skillet or, you know, a saucy tomato dish in the skillet, almost always you can take a handful of a green like spinach or something, you know, make sure it's cut into smaller pieces and stir it in and it will just wilt immediately. And that's an easy way usually to, to get some extra greens in, you know, smoothies, of course, in my first cookbook, I was determined to figure out how to make a smoothie with greens in it that my kids would not know had greens. (laughs) And so it's probably one of the, the, one of our favorite smoothies. It's just a very green smoothie, but I was determined to get the probiotics in there. I was determined to get some greens in and I was determined for them to have no idea that it had the greens in there. Um, So I used some dark berries and the colors really help with that. Oh, that's a good idea. So like a blackberry and a blueberry with some greens. Uh Mm. Yes, exactly. You know, also I think we get stuck on like what is considered 
norm or the norms for what we eat at certain meals. For instance, you know, even if we may be hungry for like a sandwich at breakfast, we think, oh no, it's breakfast. I shouldn't eat that. Same for a salad. Like you can make a breakfast salad and top it with a, you know, poached or fried egg. So you know, I think we've just gotten so locked into the idea of greens, meaning a salad and, you know, kind of being a tasteless salad often. Um, that there's a lot more we can do with them. That is a great point. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that the people that come to me when we talk about cooking and food, one of the things that people often have trouble with is lunch because nowadays so many people are working from home. So it's different than, you know, if you're in the office and you can just order out or, you know, if you work in a, in a city, you know, there's all those places like chopped or sweet greens or things like that. But more and more people working at home, you know, now they have to provide their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, and I think dinner people know, okay, it's going to be a bigger meal. I'm going to look at a recipe. I'm going to make something. <laughs> but can we talk about lunch it's just so that people don't go to the sandwich all the time, right? With white bread and processed meat. What are some fun lunch ideas that are quick to make and of course incorporate some of these anti-inflammatory foods and that are good for inflammation? You know, I'm in the same boat and I have found I definitely need to not do meal prep, but I will usually try to make one dish, either like a soup or like yesterday I made a the rosemary chicken salad that's in my cookbook that's coming out. And just so I have it on hand during the week. You know, I won't eat it necessarily every day, but I have it there to prevent me from running out to chopped or sweet greens. So I'll have something in the winter. I like to have a soup on hand. I love leftovers and I have been known to maybe make extra of our dinner of a favorite dinner just so I have leftovers for lunch. I know not everybody's a leftover fan and eggs can be a great one. You can have a quick, easy frittata that you can do an individual frittata you can do in the skillet. So eggs and loading it up with, you know, veggies and um, greens greens and greens. Yes. And then I always try to make sure that I have some components that I could toss together to make my own chopped salad or my own um, salad. So I make sure I have greens on hand already. I try to make sure before the wheat starts that I have some kind of protein on hand that's quick to grab. So it may be... um, tuna or salmon in the cabinet. It may be chickpeas, black beans, maybe grilled chicken that I've, you know, stuck in the fridge after grilling it, just something in there. And then, you know, um, you can add, create your own salad. So you can add whatever protein, you can add a bean, cherry tomatoes, veggies, you can add a berry, a nut. So, you know, you don't have to have all these things, but have some on hand that you, like I keep toasted pepitas or pumpkin seeds in my pantry. I really like those to throw on salads for a little crunch. Um, You know, just you can kind of combine, you know, get a protein, get another, you know, few vegetables, get a berry or nut and, you know, add a really good dressing. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about that. I, I just wanted to go back for a second though and say that, you know, the protein is really important. Um, I think that most of us don't get enough. And so it's really important to have. I love your idea of the chicken salad because, you know, you can make that a little, it's like a little more fun than just grilled chicken. You know, I think people, you know, their eyes light up a little bit more when I mean, you say chicken salad versus like, oh, more grilled chicken. <laughs> so I think that's a great topping on a salad or even on like some type of like a 
a gluten-free flatbread or some type of a tortilla even that the chicken salad could work on. So that definitely makes it more fun. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then the things that you like, like you said, the pumpkin seeds or a few other like, and you don't need a lot, but sometimes, you know, it's that little bit, you know, sometimes people tell me very low dairy, but I have you know, just a tiny little bit of feta or a little bit of blue cheese. And this is, of course, for people who don't have a major dairy sensitivity that can tolerate it. Sometimes a tiny little bit of it just gives it that flavor and it just makes everything better. Exactly. And, you know, those, if you have a nut you like or seed you like and a soft cheese that you like, like feta, that's a great example. You don't need much. And those also keep um, for a while in the fridge or seeds and nuts um, in the pantry. And then dressing. Let's talk about that. Um, there's obviously gazillions of brands of store-bought dressing, but so many of them are not going to have the good oils, right? They're going to have the canola and the, you know, who knows what, soybean oil and things like that. So I know they're convenience, but I know that it's not hard to make your own dressing. Do you have any favorite recipes? It isn't hard. And I've used a couple in the salads chapter of my book. But I will be honest, there are so many good, reputable brands that are coming out now that are more conscious of ingredient quality um, that you can sometimes find a few pretty good store-bought ones if you're if you're selective, um, you know, Tessie Mays um, and Primal Kitchen are two that usually have pretty good, high quality ingredients in there. They'll use, um, it's really still hard to find dressings that use extra virgin olive oil. I think that's because it it can go bad quicker, but um, you can find avocado oil and some healthier oils in there. And, you know, I tell people, look at the ingredient list and, you know, Maybe you aren't making your homemade dressing, but you want to see that the ingredients on that bottle are the same as if you were making it at home. So I want to see extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil or a healthier oil. I want to see maybe vinegar, lemon juice, um, you know, a tiny bit of sugar or honey or maple syrup towards the end is not horrible because if I was making it at home, I'd probably add a little bit of that to balance all the flavors, the acidity from the vinegar, you know? So, but I mean, you do want to see it at the end of the list um, or towards the end. Um, but yes, homemade dressings are really pretty easy and you can make a big batch like in a mason jar and then just keep it in your fridge and shake it before you need to use it. Now, if someone is trying to eat, you know, of course there's different types of diets and someone may be eating a little bit higher fat, but for those people who are more carb metabolic types, maybe trying to eat a little bit lower fat with certain meals. Do you have any dressing ideas for those that are trying to eat a little bit lower fat and may not want as much oil? I would rather use the real thing and just use a little less. I think um, a little bit of your extra virgin olive oil and your dressing, a little bit of healthy fat is so powerful from a satiety perspective. And that's, I think that's why we never felt full in those fat-free days that we had. Thank goodness we were past those. But, you know, you need, um, you need some fat in your diet. It's just being, if you are watching your fat more closely, it's being very choosy where you get it. So I would actually use those dressings, just try to get by with a little less of those dressings. Measure your amount that you're using. Now, for dinners. Um, this is something where, you know, I think especially if, you know, someone has a family and a little kids, you know, they think they have to sort of have this 
big dinner, right? To feed the family. And then I think the opposite side is for people who live alone, they may feel that, you know, I don't want to cook this whole elaborate dinner. It's just me. I'm going to have too many leftovers. I won't be able to eat it. So is there some type of an in-between that do you have, you know, maybe one or two staples that you really like, you know, that is a balanced meal that has your good fats, that has your proteins, that, you know, has all these anti-inflammatory foods, but that's easy to make. So whether someone has a family and and they're very busy or, you know, someone's living alone and they don't need as much, they can still enjoy. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of where the concept for my, uh, for this cookbook came from, Meals That Heal One Pot is, you know, I was just at a point where kind of the last thing I wanted to do after working all day and getting home was cook a big elaborate dinner. So, you know, I had, that's where the concept for one pot came, you know, it's one sheet pan, one skillet, one pot somehow. Um, and it all has your, you know, your protein, your vegetable. I try to be conscious of carbs. So if you want to add, um, like some brown rice or quinoa or something on the side, you can, but the dish in itself will serve, you know, will meet your needs from protein and, and vegetable perspective. All of them, my kids have taste tested all of them. Um, you know, and I'm a foodie by nature. I am also a dietitian, but I'm a foodie. So I like good food. So, you know, if I made something, tested a recipe and it didn't meet my standards for, you know, what I wanted to eat for dinner, from a taste perspective or nutrition perspective, or if, you know, my kids absolutely would not touch it or like no way, you know, it didn't go in the book. So, you know, I I want people to know that, um, you know, I'm just like them in a lot of ways. I'm not cooking these big elaborate dinners, but you can combine simple ingredients together and get some really good things. When it comes to um, cooking, maybe for people who live alone or it's just them or just two people, I am huge on leftovers. Some of the dishes you could probably freeze in individual portions. But then there are a lot of recipes where it's very easy to, if it serves four, or, um, it's very easy to just cut the ingredients in half, use a little bit smaller pan. Yeah, I love the idea of the one pot um, because... I mean, let's face it, right? Who wants to wash 25 different pots and and everything else? So I think that that's really, really, really wonderful. And it's nice that we can get the protein and, you know, if we need the carb, we could do it on the side, but we can get that protein, the vegetable, the fats, like all of the goodness in there. I mean, and there's so, so many wonderful recipes in the book. And, you know, I just think it's so well-written and you give so much other information too. It's not just, hey, here's the recipes, but the whys and how, and, you know, we talked a lot about the foods to include here that are anti-inflammatory. You also, of course, talk about some of the more in actual inflammatory foods to avoid later, but it's just so important, like you said, to include these first. Now, can you give us an example of one of the recipes um, that you use that maybe is one of the staples for you at home as well? Oh, gosh, I don't have the book in front of me right now. There's so many, I know. Um, Well, I made the, um, I do love the rosemary chicken salad that I made yesterday that's from the book. Mm. There is a spinach artichoke chicken skillet. It's really good. It's a creamy sauce. But most of these recipes, um, if they do have a little dairy, I give a dairy-free option in there. And most of them, if they have dairy, it's usually a little cheese 
Cheese is the one thing I can't give up. But I was trying to be very conscious to people who have to be dairy-free. And so try to give an alternative, if at all possible, um, on most every recipe in there. Of course, I'm going blank right now. There's some sheet pan dishes. Oh, there's a great, my kids love, there's a sheet pan beef and broccoli. Oh. It's super easy. And so that's baked in the oven on one sheet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Shashuska with your chickpeas and your tomatoes and your eggs, which is a quick, easy dish to make. Yeah, and I love the frittata too that you have in this skillet. I just think, you know, and you, of course you can bake frittatas too, but I think it tastes so much better in the skillet. I don't know. There's something about it kind of being like baked in there. It's just so delicious. Yeah, and it's super quick. We forget about eggs, but they are so super quick. Yeah, and there's so much more than just scrambled eggs, right, that we can do. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's it's so nice to have ideas and you know, I think your cookbook, you know, Meals That Heal, and it's in one pot. I mean, it provides all the ideas. It has all the background on it. And you don't need to do a ton of cleaning after because it's one pot or one sheet. So I love that. Um, I know that the book just came out. Um, where can everyone get the book? Meals That Heal One Pot is available at all major bookstores, Barnes & Noble, also available on Amazon. You should be able to buy it any major retailer. So yeah, I hope people get it and enjoy it. Yes. I've, I've tried a couple of things and I'm looking at all of the other things and you know all the pictures. It's just, it's so vibrant. I'm, I'm excited about all of those recipes. And as we were saying, I think the biggest thing is that we know that food is the foundation. We know that it's so important, but sometimes it's like, you know, but what do we do, right? Where do we start? Which is why I wanted to give people some of these ideas and then they can look at some of the recipes and do more. Because the other thing too is, I mean, there's of course recipes out there online. You can get them on social media. You can get them on the internet, but you also don't know where they're coming from, who's providing them. Have they actually tried them, right? Sometimes these recipes just copied from one person to the next and you don't even know what's what. So I think, you know, it's so good. Like you said, you've tried everything. And, you know, if it wasn't approved by you or your children, which is a lot. I think that says a lot. That's some pretty high standards when you have run it by the kids. Yeah. Too. No, that's great. And Carolyn, and for those that want to connect with you, um, where can they find you? Yeah. So I am most active on Instagram when it comes to social media. Uh, you can find me at real food, real life underscore RD as in registered dietitian. You can also look me up by my name. It's Carolyn Williams, PhD, RD. And then I also have a website, which is carolynwilliamsrd.com. Wonderful. And we'll put all of that in the show notes. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all of this information. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you for having me. When dealing with chronic health issues, what we eat is so important. And while so many of us know this, it is still something that's quite difficult to do. With Liz, we had to start from the beginning, and that was by adding things more so than even taking them away. We started with adding more organic berries, and we did that through her snacks, but also smoothies. There are so many delicious ways that we can make smoothies. We can use fruit of all kind, and adding berries is so, so helpful. We can use beverages of our choice. It could be unsweetened nut milks. It can be a little bit of coconut water. It could be just regular water. And then we can use other delicious foods like avocado to make it creamy and protein powders to help balance meals. For Liz, I recommended using collagen protein 
because you can get an unflavored version, so it doesn't taste like anything. It really doesn't have much texture. So when you put it into smoothies, you really won't even know that it's there. And so we did lots of organic berries. We did the collagen protein, some unsweetened vanilla almond milk, and a little bit of avocado, which really helps to make it creamy, but really doesn't do much to the taste. So it doesn't change the taste in any way. And this is how she started her day. It helps with balancing blood sugar, and it gives her antioxidants and good protein for energy. Once she got comfortable with this, we then started adding greens right into the smoothies. We wanted to go slow, so again, the flavor doesn't change too much, so we started with just a handful of spinach. Then we added a little bit of kale, a little bit of Swiss chard, and then she rotated those greens. It does change the color of the smoothie, but not so much the flavor, And again, it's a great way to add nutrients to a really delicious and nutritious breakfast. We then move to a few other very easy and simple meals for lunch and dinner. The first thing we started with is just chicken salad. She wasn't ready to cook her own chicken, so I asked her to stop at Whole Foods and pick up an organic rotisserie chicken, which she then cut off the meat and mixed with a little bit of avocado, some grapes, some nuts, and she made a delicious chicken salad. And as Carolyn mentioned, she also has a wonderful rosemary chicken salad in her book as well. She then used this chicken salad to put on top of her green salads or put in wraps. We use cassava or we also used a coconut wrap. And that was a super easy lunch. And it was a lot cheaper than spending $15 on a sandwich that she was getting out. For dinner, I walked her through how to cook certain grains like quinoa, buckwheat, rice, and then also we looked at different ways of making sweet potatoes. She tried boiling them, baking them, and then also cutting them up in little circles and baking them that way so they almost come out like little chips. Very nutritious, but all have slightly different flavors depending on what she was in the mood for. And I really worked with her on seeing her meals from all the different food groups. So the proteins, the carbs, the veggies, the veggies are technically carbs, but I sort of see them in its own category, and then some good fats. So then we started with a very easy stir fry, some grass-fed ground beef that she would brown on the pan for just a couple of minutes. Then she would add some beans or some rice that she already had cooked, and then a vegetable of her choice. Broccoli was an easy choice because she could buy it already cut up and washed, and then all she had to do is throw it into the stir fry. It took less than 15 minutes to make, and then she had leftovers for a few days after as well. Liz has always thought that cooking is really hard, and that it takes a lot of time, and that all the recipes are really, really complicated. And that's really not true. It was just a belief. And so what I helped her see is that cooking doesn't have to take a long time. It doesn't have to be complicated, and we can choose really easy and simple recipes. As she started doing that, she realized it really wasn't that hard, just like I was telling her. And she almost didn't believe the difference that she felt in just two weeks after cutting out all of the processed dinners that she was eating and all of the takeout that she was getting, and then switching out to clean home-cooked meals. And as we mentioned, it didn't even take her that long to make. Liz was so excited that she was feeling better and so excited about her new skill of cooking that she didn't even think she could do. After a few more weeks of eating clean, as Liz was feeling better and better, 
Then we did a little bit more testing to see what nutrients she needed. And she did need some, but she certainly did not need the 25 vitamins that she was taking before. So we were able to pare down what she was taking. So it saved her a lot of money. And she was able to eat well and take about six supplements, which is exactly what her body needed based on her test results. Liz was so excited. And of course, so was I. If Liz sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? And please be sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. And remember, as always, when it comes to your health issues, please, please do not give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mysteries Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.